Lots of channels, nothing to watch, especially if you're searching for the truth. It's time to interrupt your regularly scheduled programs with something actually worth watching. Salem News Channel, straightforward, unfiltered, with in-depth insight and analysis from the greatest collection of conservative minds like Hugh Hewitt, Mike Gallagher, Sebastian Gorka, and more. Find truth. Watch 24-7 on SNC.TV and on Local Now, Channel 525. And now back to Lifeline with Craig Roberts. And welcome back to Lifeline. We're visiting today with Nigelin Brown, Executive Director of Focus on the Family's Focus Leadership Institute. We're talking about uh, that exciting time in your son or daughter's life when they graduate from high school, but then that very fearful time when, in many cases, they're stepping out into the world without the safety nets for the very first time as they head off to college or university. And what does it mean for them to be able to express, defend, and maintain their faith. And, you know, Leland, I'm reminded you mentioned just before the break about the importance to continue to speak truth and, and continue to recognize the influence that parents have on their children's lives. You know, we, we start out with the speech that we give our son or daughter when they attend their first day at school or when they go off on their first date or when they attend their prom. I guess there's another important speech that needs to be given as they head off to um, college or university. And I guess part of it comes down to reminding them about a balance in life, because let's face it, they're going to be in a new environment where they've got newfound freedoms, new responsibilities, new friends, and I guess they have to be reminded to make sure that amongst all the things that are so new, to make sure that they carve out time for their old, quote-unquote, faith. Indeed, indeed. God repeatedly calls us to be good stewards throughout Scripture. I think one one of the issues that many students run into in the college environment is, as we look at education today as a nation, we see it simply as preparing individuals to fit somehow into the economic system. And therefore, we lose the grander narrative of us being good stewards of the talents and gifts God has given us, developing those in college, and then having an impact. So I think it's so important not simply to make state, stu- statements excuse me, to students like, make sure you're in class, go to the library, you know, <laughs> you better be writing those papers. But rather, we want to give them, what's the reason you want to go to class? You want to stop by the library, you want to write those papers. It's because God is weaving a grand tapestry in the world. And the purpose of you having time to go and study within the university or the college setting is so that you're prepared to be a part of that grand tapestry. I think it's so important that parents repeat those things. I was a first-generation college student, and I'll tell you this much. My parents did a wonderful job, even when I felt like I didn't fit in the college campus because I didn't know many who had been through a four-year institution close to my family. Um, My parents constantly, and members of my church community, constantly reminded me, God's going to use you for something great. Make sure, make good use of that time there. And I think I felt less like I was being beat over the head and more like I was being encouraged along in the race. Makes perfect sense. And, you know, helping them understand in that encouragement that, uh, you know, they're, they're going to hear this word freedom a lot, but the other word that needs to be tied into it is responsibility. There you have it. 
and to understand that uh, they, they need to maintain a level now of, of personal responsibility for themselves. You know, there, there's not going to be anybody there to say, time to get up and go to school, uh, time to go and do your laundry, time to go and eat, time to go to church, time to read, time to, uh, uh, you know, spend some study time alone in meditation with the Lord. And so yeah. it's going to be important that they, that they set and establish, uh, I guess, a sense of, of spiritual discipline too then, wouldn't it? A, a, a very strong habit of spiritual discipline, which leads to a strong habit of educational discipline. But I think this is what's so important about spiritual discipline. Your children have to see you doing it before they can value it. Mm-hmm. And if they don't ever see you pray, they don't ever see us reading Scripture, and I have three children of my own, if Daddy never prays at the table, reads Scripture, we have discussions, that I cannot expect them to go out <laughs> and carry that with them. Because we, we do, again, learn a lot from our parents' example. And I believe part of the reason why God calls children to honor their father and mother is not because, it's not only because he's holding the child accountable to honor them, but that also puts accountability on the parents. For you to be something that's worth honoring, <laughs> for you to demonstrate a relationship with God, so the child is to look up to you and follow your example. So I think it's so important that they have that structure. And let me say this, let me, let me make this last point. It's so important that we not be helicopter parents when they get into college. Responsibility matters. I agree with you 110%. I have experienced so many parents in my teaching career as a university faculty member who want to come and clean up all the mistakes of their children in class. And that does nothing but lead to a child who takes even less responsibility because mom and dad are eventually going to show up and save me from what I've done. So as we encourage them on in God's great plan, be spiritually disciplined, spend time in, in Scripture, spend time in prayer, make sure you're attending classes and you're, and you're planning things out. and You can have some fun, but you're also being responsible. I think it's also important as well to let students scrape their knee when they scrape their knee and not always run up behind them and attempt to fix the situation by chasing down their faculty member and telling them why even though my son didn't turn in the last three papers, they're just a really good kid. Yeah, I mean, it, it, there is an inclination by parents to want to be overprotective, and given you know their understanding and experience with the world, uh, I think that's a reasonable expectation, but it's not realistic when it comes to the relationship with the kid. But, you know, it, it, that raises an important point. As children are going out, and everything is about new discovery. They're discovering themselves. They're discovering newfound freedoms, responsibilities, yeah. newfound friends. Is it important at the very least as we encourage our child, since they will cross paths, with a whole variety of people, some of whom they will share the same worldview and values with, and many of whom they will not, to maybe find themselves in a position where they can come under, if not, again, the the, the hover parents, you know, at least have some access or exposure to someone who can provide kind of in that mentoring relationship the kind of guidance that they really need. Now, this maybe could be a teacher on campus, maybe a graduate student or somebody else, somebody that's not mom and dad, and yet is somebody that they can look up to that can, get, that can speak some truth into their life. That is so very important. And one of the, I think, before students go on the college campus, one of the things parents should encourage them to do is, number one, as, as you stated, sometimes they're going across the country or across the state, uh, number one, find a local church fellowship. Many of the successful students I've seen who are really growing spiritually strong during their college years have a local 
fellowship, a church fellowship outside of their college community. And oftentimes that's where they will find mentors. But there are also faculty members on campus who can pour into their lives. And I think this is when it's so important that parents share their stories of those who have helped them in their walk with Christ and encourage their child. You find those people too. God has those folks out there for you. You do not have to do this alone. On every college campus, I would venture to say, or within the local community of the local church, a child, a young person can find a mentor who can pour into them spiritually and also help them through the process of grappling with big questions. I had a couple of faculty members who really made the difference during my undergraduate career, as well as a pastor and his wife who actually came and visited uh, me and my family this past weekend from the local church I attended during my undergraduate career. And they made an indelible imprint on me as a young man, in my view of family, in my view of truth, in my view of Christ, and all of that took place while I was pretty far away from home, and mom and dad weren't there. And actually, oftentimes, you know, uh, what will, uh, put it this way, when I was a kid, Neeland, um, my father was pretty stupid, and it's amazing, the older I got, the smarter my father got. <laughs> <laughs> Of course, when when I say that in front of him, he doesn't quite agree with it that way. But certainly from the child's perspective, you know, when we're young, we think we know everything and our parents know nothing. Then we get into our 20s and our 30s and our 40s and some of us even beyond that. I I don't know that directly, but I read about it. Uh, You you learn that, you know what, mom and dad weren't so dumb. And so sometimes these mentors, as you point out, have an opportunity to speak truth into the life of our child and an age when they might not receive that truth from mom or dad, but would openly embrace that truth coming from an independent third party whose opinion they respect and they believe, well, it must be true because this person doesn't have an agenda at foot here. There you have it. And, And let me make sure I say this. Every parent who is sending a child away from home to college should be praying this prayer. Lord, send someone to disciple my son or daughter. Send a good, I think sometimes we, we just want to be the people to do it for our own children, you know? <laughs> so, so we say, Lord, send them to me. But I, I always recommend praying, Lord, send them someone who can touch their life and they'll listen to them. You know, someone who's rooted in the gospel, stands firm on biblical truth, and my child will hear them. Because you are exactly right. I remember when I got ready to marry my wife, suddenly my father knew all kinds of stuff. Yes. Uh-huh. <laughs> I said, wow, this guy has good things to say. And I wondered what happened during that period from me being 13 to 17 when he knew absolutely nothing. He, he, he must have been studying privately, quietly at night, you yes, know? I suppose, I suppose yeah. so. But suddenly, and I, I think, and that's one of the things parents have to understand. Young people go through phases. There is a questioning phase while they're in college, and they don't only question their faith. They question everything, (laughs) their place in the world, what they eat, what they drink. It's the reason that we have all of these causes that break out. I mean, college students, will they will protest any given cause because they're at a point in their life where they're sorting out society, sorting out what they believe, so on and so forth. So if you feel a little distance from your child, keep reaching out to them. 
keep loving them because soon enough life happens <laughs> and you start coming back around. <laughs> That's exactly right. Well, some good solid advice for parents to provide to their children and take for themselves as your son or daughter heads off to college or university. I'd like to thank Neilan Brown for being with us, Executive Director of Focus Leadership Institute, located at Focus on the Family. Leland, lots of resources available, too, through the website, focusleadership.org. Lots of, lots of uh, resources available there, and we would love for any parents to reach out and contact us. Uh, you could even shoot me an email. My email is on there, so contact me if you have any questions or, or thoughts, if there's any way we can assist with recommending a resource for your college student. Excellent. Again, on the web at focusleadership.org. That's focusleadership.org. And our thanks to Neilan Brown, the Executive Director of Focus Leadership Institute, for being with us on this segment of Lifeline. And now back to Lifeline with Craig Roberts. The White House has been expressing regret over the way in which Qurans were disposed of in Afghanistan. Now, you might recall a couple of three years ago, maybe four years ago, pallets of New Testaments were sent to Afghanistan by Christian organization here in America to be available to distribution to members of the United States military. The very presence of God's word on Afghan soil made the Afghanis so upset that in order to deal with the controversy, the United States military burned them. Didn't put them back on a plane and ship them back to the States. They just set them on fire. Nobody said a word. We complained about it on this program. Few others covered the story. Largely nobody said a word. Now, the White House is doing a lot of hand-wringing over this entire issue because it seems as if uh, there's major concerns over the fact that the United States military improperly, quote-unquote, disposed of copies of the Koran in Afghanistan. In fact, there's uh, been some statements made by uh, General John Allen, commander for the International Security Assistance Force, offering his sincere apologies over what transpired. ISAF personnel at Bagram Air Base improperly disposed of a large number of Islamic religious materials, which included Qurans. We immediately intervened and stopped them. The materials recovered will be properly handled by appropriate religious authorities. We are thoroughly investigating the incident, and we are taking steps to ensure this does not ever happen again. Of course, it's their country, and I guess they can have their own rules with regard to Sharia law and so forth. But I just find it quite ironic that uh, they had no issue with the burning of thousands of Bibles, and yet Qurans being disposed of inappropriately, and everything in the United States military comes to a grinding halt. Walid Shobat joins us now. He himself is the author of a number of best-selling books, including Dear Muslim, Let Me Tell You Why I Believed. Of Israel and the World's Mock Trial, and his latest book, God's War on Terror. And Wally, great to have you back on the program. Thank you for having me. What is uh, first your reaction to this news uh, coming out of Afghanistan with regards to the apologies and the mea culpas in the handling of these Qurans? Well, it's very shocking. Uh, we've had those kind of apologies uh, happen when, uh, I believe, also military servicemen urinated on dead terrorists, yet that's a major issue. Yet the killing of Americans, or even the invitation of uh, the uh, uh, 
Prime Minister of Transportation of Iraq, which was involved, who was involved in the Khobar Tower massacres, killing American servicemen, uh, he's welcome to the White House. You know, those kind of things is beginning to show the American people that there is uh, a double standard here, in which the Obama administration uh, suppresses uh, the issues that relate to the American people's rights to investigate even the 9-11 issues in which uh, Judge Daniels, a uh, federal judge in the Havlish case, discovered that Iran is involved in 9-11, in which uh, agents of the Iranian regime, uh, like Hadi al-Amri, visits the White House, and of course the president uh, releases, uh, sends back, I guess, our troops uh, as a Christmas present, yet ignoring those issues of persecution of Christians globally in Egypt, uh, in Iraq, uh, in much of the Muslim world, uh, in which, uh, let's face it, I mean, there are thousands of cases in which Islamists burned uh, Bibles, uh, even in historical uh, recent times, uh, and even back to the Damur massacre in Lebanon, in which they used them for toilet paper. They used Bibles for toilet paper. Let's not forget the destruction of holy sites, even in Israel. Nothing was done by our administration in which uh, even Joseph's tomb was desecrated and Torah scrolls were defecated on and uh, things that are is very difficult to describe on the program. Instead of addressing the major issues that we have, you know, uh, in which the Muslim Brotherhood in Egypt are advancing through deception, that's a subject we'd love to discuss on your show, in which they use uh, uh, what is called Muruna to twist the... Uh, Sharia law itself and permit Muslims from carrying out all kinds of evil activities. Well, let's talk about what's going on there, uh, since you brought it up. Uh, we, we all know, of course, 30 years ago, the assassination of Anwar Sadat, largely because he dared to enter into a peace agreement uh, with the nation of Israel. Um, for the course of the following 30 years, Hosni Mubarak, granted while somewhat uh, favorable or friendly with of uh, the West, nevertheless, was a totalitarian leader. Uh, he eventually gets ousted, as we know, during the so-called uh, Arab Spring, and uh, this is applauded much by the administration that we see the deposing of this dictator and the idea of a true democracy now coming to um, Egypt, and yet instead we instead what we've really seen is is the overtaking of that nation by the, the, the Islamists. Uh, we've seen better than 80% elected to the parliament there. It is just within the last um, several weeks, for example, uh, there in Egypt that some 3,000 Coptic Christians uh, were driven from their homes and villages, businesses burned down, churches burned down, uh, and yet the international media, uh, let alone the administration, has nothing to say about this. Nothing whatsoever. In fact, the general guide of the Egyptian Muslim Brotherhood, Muhammad Badir, who laid out his vision for the post-revolutionary era in Egypt, while revealing aspects of the strategy uh, to his followers, showed a great deal of uh, how to combat secularism. In fact, they're reversing secularism in Egypt. In fact, I quote him verbatim. I translated it. It was translated from the Arabic. He says, Do not fight in the ways of the world, because they are overpowering, but try to overcome and use them, change their course, and pit some of them against the other. It's a master scheme of reversing secularism in Egypt and advancing Islamist cause and saying that the Muslims now need to kind of join in with secularists in order to pit uh, people against each other and change the course of the situation in Egypt. Uh, when Badir says to overcome and use, 
the ways of the world, he is instructing Muslims worldwide on how to overcome Western secularism. It was precisely this purpose for which the Muslim Brotherhood advanced a new doctrine called Muruna, M-U-R-U-N-A, which Americans and Westerners fairly are accustomed to. It was prescribed by Sheikh Yusuf al-Qaradawi, the main Muslim Brotherhood intellect, and what its goal is to basically sanction all Islamic prohibitions. In other words, we're talking about Sharia laws, despite the Sharia laws is really in contrary to our Constitution, uh, now certain Sharia laws that basically protect uh, human beings for surviving or protects or even san- uh, prohibits Muslims in working in banks are all permitted. Now, uh, uh, the Muslim Brotherhood has, has an injunction to allow the killing uh, of even Muslims in Western countries. Uh, if they are shielded by Western society, it's okay. As long as you kill the Americans, you kill the Muslims in, in, in the process, that's fine. I could go through all kinds of documents and all kinds of issues here, uh, but Americans need to begin to understand the deception factor that the Muslim Brotherhood is applying with Maruna in which they reverse uh, all uh, laws, even in Sharia, to make permitted to permit the Muslims from uh, carrying out evil acts. In fact, I could give the quotes uh, to show what this plan is all about. Let me have you pause at that point. I want to have you share uh, that, if you would, Wally, but do so uninterrupted. So let's do this. Let's get an update on traffic real quick here, get a look at some headline news. We'll come back to more of our conversation. Wally Shobot, my guest. As we're talking about uh, the the deception plan uh, underway in Egypt, and I tell you, we got a lot to be concerned about, folks. And now back to Lifeline with Craig Roberts. All right, welcome back to our conversation. Walid Shobat, my guest. Walid, if you're not familiar with his work in ministry, is a former Palestinian terrorist and um, joins us now as we're talking about uh, what's been going on with the changes uh, since the fall of the Mubarak regime in uh, Egypt last year. Uh, there had been so much hope of the so-called Arab Spring, but yet as we've seen, nation after nation in that region, Tunisia and Libya and Egypt and so on, fall. Uh, we're beginning to find out that this Arab Spring is turning into the Islamic winter. Talk a bit about um, what you were sharing just before the break, Walid, and that is uh, this tactic that's being used by the Muslim Brotherhood that has gained so much power, almost 75-80% of the seats in the Egyptian parliament now under their control. Uh, what exactly are they up to right now, and, and what's going on with the changes in relationship to Sharia law there? Well, it is actually a tactic titled Maruna. M, like Mary, U-R-U-N-A. In fact, people could look it up and look at my research by just plugging my name, Shubat and Maruna. It was a doctrine that was prescribed by, by none other than Sheikh Yusuf al-Qaradawi, who's the main Muslim Brotherhood intellect. He initiated the doctrine in December, as far back as 1989, December, while in, he was in the, while in the United States, even during an annual conference, with the Association of the Muslim Youth Forum, with Muhammad Hamidi, who, by the way, is a leading rebel in Libya who participated heavily in the Arab Spring. Hamidi is also the head of the Muslim Brotherhood in Mauritania. So 
so the idea of Muruna is really to pull the wool, pull the, you know, uh, deceive the West in talking about this whole idea of Arab Spring and all of these things, when it, in fact it is an Islamic Spring, and the doctrine really aspires for deception against the West. The doctrine really is a, was a long-term plan. Uh, it should be very great interest to every American in, in, in what the forum termed the priorities of the Islamic movement in the next three decades, from 1990 to 2020. They planned to attain what they described as what they called the goal of the Islamic movement, which confirms the general leader of the Muslim Brotherhood, Badir, which he made it recently, the statement that uh, they want to basically uh, uh, have Egypt come back and change the society and I quote it verbatim, to lead society, all of society, to bring back the caliphate, to announce jihad, either by arms or by pen or, or by heart. And they talk about global takeover of the world. Muruna was designed to catapult and advance sharia by using Western means. And if one thinks that sharia, with its harsh code, is problematic enough, how about the elimination of the kinder, gentler laws of sharia? Muruna is literally accomplished by permitting behavior normally is, in, uh, is chewed by the Sharia law itself that Westerners logically see more moderate version of Islam. When such prohibitions are suddenly permitted, uh, you, be, you begin to see uh, a change in the Muslim world. Westerners, you know, in fact, uh, are being deceived. Muruna is about going to great lengths to gain interest through uh, a much deeper level of deception, while simultaneously lowering the guard and gaining the support of the what they call the infidels. Uh, in fact, uh, the series of preparing the atmosphere under the uh, what they call the workings of Asia, which is inclusion and Muruna, which is flexibility in this case. And this is the quote that they have in their law and this doctrine verbatim, translated into English. It says, Sharia's ability to be flexible and inclusive is that it cares for their needs while excusing the burdens Muslims have to endure for the sake of their destiny. It was made lawful for them to have exceptions from the law that are appropriate for them since these exceptions match their general goals to make it easy for humanity by removing the chains of Sharia law they were made to adhere in previous Sharia rulings. In other words, let's make null and void Sharia laws that prohibits the Muslim from doing certain things well, by befriending the unbelievers, working in banking. A Muslim girl uh, now is allowed to marry a non-Muslim in the West, as we've seen with the case of Anthony Weiner and Huma Abedin, which her mother, Saleh Abedin, was a member of the Muslim Brotherhood. Now, this is why I began to investigate this whole issue. That story then raised a red flag. How could it be possible that Sheikh Yusuf al-Qaradawi of the Muslim Brotherhood allows such a marriage when in Islam it's prohibited? In fact, it, it mandates the death penalty. So the West in this case sees, wow, look, the Muslim Brotherhood has moderated when nothing of the such. It is really a ruse in order to basically put spies in the West. This is, this, is, this is really infiltration, what we're talking about here, then. Exactly what it is. In fact, it's infiltration to the point that all the Islamic injunctions, all the uh, prohibitions have been made to be uh, uh, sanctified. 
In fact, I can give one quote that basically puts an end to the argument. Uh, and this quote from Muruna Doctrine by the Muslim Brotherhood, it states, I quote, When evil and harm conflict as necessities demand, we must then choose the least of the two evils or harms. This is what the experts in jurisprudence decided. If interests and harms and evils conflict or benefits conflict with evils, what is then to be decided is to review each benefit and each evil and its consequences so the minor evils are forgiven for the sake of the greater long-term benefit. In fact, I add what they have stated here, which is more extreme. He said, they say, the evil is, so, uh, is also accepted even if that evil is extreme and normally considered deplorable. In other words, deplorable evils now are permitted in Islam in order to carry out these interests for the Muslim Brotherhood. Wow. Let's pause on that point. We're going to come back. I mean, this again, you talk about the frog in the kettle approach, this notion of temporary setting aside of some aspects of Sharia law, as Walid Shobat is suggesting, uh, in order to allow Islam greater ability to penetrate uh, Western life, uh, all with the idea in mind of not becoming a you know, friendlier, uh, uh, newer version of Islam, but rather uh, in order to penetrate to have greater influence uh, with a goal in mind of, of uh, doing just that, and that is the changing of our culture and our society. This is serious stuff. We're going to take a time out. We'll come back to more of our conversation. His latest best-selling book, God's War on Terror. Former Palestinian terrorist Waleed Shobat. Back to more of our conversation as Lifeline continues. And now back to Lifeline with Craig Roberts. All right, back to our conversation tonight with Waleed Shobat. Waleed is uh, formerly involved with the PLO. Uh, he of anybody in this country understands exactly what is going on with the so-called Arab Spring, which for many is turning into an Islamic winter. We're talking about the Islamic Brotherhood, or the, or the Muslim Brotherhood, rather, uh, their impact on Middle Eastern politics, most specifically what they've done in Egypt and other parts of the world. And it's interesting because when you talk, Walid, about the degree of uh, the Muruna uh, deception here, uh, this goes to the highest levels. There are reports that we have read uh, during the fall of regimes in Libya with Gaddafi and in Egypt with Mubarak that the influence of the Muslim Brotherhood uh, has been lauded as, quote, mostly or largely secular and that they have been considered heroes uh, in opening a pathway toward democracy. But is this the case? That's absolutely false. It's not true. The Al-Nahda uh, in Tunisia is very much pro-Muslim Brotherhood. Uh, in fact, in all these countries, they're talking about advancing towards Jerusalem, which has nothing to do with any Arab Spring. It's the idea is to topple uh, all Arab regimes and uh, uh, do away with nationalism altogether for the sake of an Islamic utopia. Uh, all the statements coming out of all the Middle Eastern uh, uh, countries that toppled their regimes, they're talking about advancing Sharia law. They're talking about a utopian uh, conquest of Islam. Uh, in fact, many who are astute to Islamic lying, I'm sure you've heard of the term taqiyya, which uh, allows Islamists to lie, but this is much greater. 
uh, with Muruna and the Muslim Brotherhood and advancement of what's happening in the Arab Spring, uh, what was uh, once forbidden by Sharia from major crimes like Muslims killing Muslims to issues of interest banking that include alliances with infidels was made temporarily now lawful by Muruna. In fact, I give the exact quote. The, the, the Muruna doctrine states, it is permissible then to have alliances with powers that are non-Muslim. They ask the question, can Muslims work in banks that practice usury? For the young Muslims, they should not leave their jobs in banks and insurance agencies, despite that their work is evil, since their experience in these agencies would gain experience for what would benefit the Muslim commerce. Whoever examines the issues in the light of the doctrine of a balance, that is Maruna, would find that entry into these arenas is not merely a project, but a preference and a duty. In other words, it is really asking all Muslim communities to infiltrate the West, to infiltrate the banking systems. In fact, even the issues when it comes to the right to life, the individual rights to life can be eliminated under this new law. Uh, under the section titled The Necessities of the Group, Qaradawi explains that, and I quote, uh, uh, as Sharia considers the individual needs, it permits many prohibitions and considers the necessities of the community. Qaradawi is not short of examples and even commands the killing of Muslims whom the unbelievers use as shields, since leaving these unbelievers is a danger to the Muslims. So it is permissible to kill these unbelievers, even if they killed Muslims uh, in the process. So death, mayhem, and even prostitution is sanctioned by the uh, Muslim Brotherhood. Uh, in fact, that's a topic that it will open the Western eyes about sanctioning prostitution, because even in Iran, when they sanction the idea of pleasure marriage, I'm sure you've heard of pleasure marriages in Iran, but how many Americans are familiar with misyar marriage, in which um, middlemen can seal uh, deals with Muslim male clients uh, in order to obtain a Muslim woman under a contract called marriage contract for simply giving sexual services? In fact, you can access it yourself on the Internet. For Internet-savvy travelers, there are countless websites like misyar online, M-E-S-I-A-R online, one word, that allow men to arrange these marriages globally, including in the United States, from the comfort of their hotel rooms, in order to basically uh, bring these women for their pleasure marriages, and it's not really a marriage, because the prostitution document says it's a marriage document. Misyar, in fact, was made legal in Saudi Arabia and Egypt, made legal, sanctioned. It is law now in Egypt and Saudi Arabia to commit these acts of whoredom. Uh, Sunnis who approve misyar condemn, of course, the Shiites for muta'ah, yet they have the same things. What the West needs to understand is that all these things about the Shiites with uh, uh, taqiyya, lying to the enemy, or pleasure marriages, are same, sanctioned in the Sunni world as well, and made lawful in the Sunni world. And in the end, all of this comes down to the matter of, of deception for the purpose of infiltration, and, and once they're able to penetrate Waleed, what becomes the agenda then? Well, the agenda, we've seen it. The penetration already happened, you know. Uh, it's been going on for many years. You have Rashad Hussein, who writes the speech for President Obama. 
I mean, Americans ought to wake up. I look at the Arabic language, and I see interview between Rashad Hussein, the speechwriter of President Obama, and when he made the speech in Egypt, I could see the interview in Al-Ahram newspaper in Arabic language, in which the editor is asking him, when is the time that you will intervene in the issues of nuclear issues with Iran, and so on and so forth. And, of course, Rashad Hussein, the speechwriter of President Obama, says that I will intervene when the time is right. It's all about timing. It's all about when they gain the foothold in the West by the time they fight people like me and you and all these people who begin to expose the issues. You could see much of the media talking about anti-Semitism, not that uh, there is uh, uh, racism against Jews, but anti-Semitism has been coined to talk about racism with Muslims when, in fact, there is no such thing. Look, America is a country that talks about racism more than any other country in the world. Yet the United States exercises the least amount of racism than any other country in the world. How does the Muslim make the argument that America commits racism against Muslims when the majority of racism that still exists, even in this country, is against Jews? So, you know, this is part of the deception. The beginning, they want to also put in code laws that basically prohibits the freedom of speech in America, in which the Organization of Islamic Council mandated the trial uh, of uh, uh, anyone who says anything against Islam or even critiques Islam to basically even face trial in the Middle East. So if, the, if that happens, that means people like myself and even your own program will be under scrutiny and our freedoms are gone. Uh, so all our forefathers, what they bled and fought for, is for, for, for nil. And this is what the goal is, to take away the freedom of Americans and begin the process of the Islamization of the world. Of course, we know that it's taking place literally right underneath our noses. Get more information, by the way, uh, online at Waleed's website, Shobat, it's S-H-O-E-B-A-T, Shobat.com. His latest book is entitled God's War on Terror. Information again on the website at Shobat.com or through Amazon.com and Waleed. Always a delight and an education to have you with us, brother. We appreciate your time today. Well, that's going to do it for this edition of Lifeline. Thanks so much for being with us. And if there was anything you heard on today's show that you'd like to hear again or share with a friend, grab a copy of the Lifeline podcast. Simply log on to kfax.com. That's kfax.com for the Lifeline podcast. Our producer is Wanda Sanchez. I'm Craig Roberts. Till next time round, remember, just don't keep the faith. Get out there and share it and make it a great evening. So long. Opinions expressed in the preceding program do not necessarily represent the views of the ownership, staff, or management of KFAX. Copyright Salem Communications, all rights reserved.